Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor. Now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Palo Alto Networks and its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. Watch the new Palo Alto Networks virtual event on demand to hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Watch on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. This is Packet Pushes Heavy Networking. Today, we are returning to the past where we get a bunch of networking people around the microphone or the virtual table, as we used to call it, to talk about, uh, I don't know, stuff is probably the best way I can think about it. We have four guest hosts today, Chris Cummings, Ricard Anderson, Marvin Martin, and Pete Lumbus. And you can find out more about them and their various social medias and, and all the things about them in the background in the show notes on the Packet Pushes website today. We've got four topics planned. Uh, each person has brought along a topic that we're going to discuss and uh, we'll get showing. And it, I, I just want to sort of call back that when we started making podcasts back in 2012, we used to call this a round table and we just bring anything along and start talking about it. Um, so the first topic that we wanted to talk about today is singing the unsung song. Now, this is yours, Ricard. You want to talk about why shortest path bridging in your multi-tenant environment is niche, but still wonderful. Give me a background. What 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 makes you think shortest path bridging is still a thing in 2023? Well, haven't you all woken up and given it the thought? Is my mm. network niche enough? <laughs> you want your, you want to be a niche? You want to have the nichiest network in the world or something? Not really, no. It, it's, <laughs> um, it all boils down to that eVPN VXLAN won the race, right? But the thing is, SPB is still out there and it is used, although it's extremely niche. And I haven't really seen or read that many stories about it being used, actually, but it is used, but mm. in very niche applications, so to say. So you're talking about eVPN is normally done with VXLAN over eBGP or BGP inside exactly. of a class. Yeah. But you're saying you can do it all over an SPF and it's still happy days. You can't do all of it, but you can do very much of it with like 1% of the complexity, complexity. And that's the thing, really. And you can also do it without using IP at all. So let me try and qualify that a little bit. You're alluding to the fact that configuring BGP, you've got very long propagation times. You have to specify where the data goes, uh, whereas an SPF would flood all of the records to all of the hosts in the network. And so the configuration state and all the devices is much better set up. Is that the idea? What I was thinking about is the pure configuration, because if you, shorter spot bridging is actually so simple, it's simpler than using straight ahead VLANs. But if, if you look at the uh, configuration complexity, uh, mm. EVPN VXLAN is dense, really dense. Mm. Uh, and uh, in, in shorter path breeding, you have one protocol for the data plane and the control plane. Mm. It, ISIS does it all, not so much in EVP and VXLAN. Mm. And so I, my idea was just to 
basically sing the unsung song and just going through how you how you would do it with the, you know, how I, you would set up a running configuration. And after all these years, I was really worried that we were never going to be able to argue OSPF versus ISIS again. And I am so happy <laughs> that, that we found a way to bring it back. Um, I mean, I'm curious. Yeah, there's some simplicity there, but is there a, like a, a good technical reason to to go with the more obscure, more bespoke? You know, are you having like weird topologies that you're trying to deal with as opposed to like a spinally fabric or you um is there a technical you know requirement or something that's driving you down that way yeah yes and no for me it isn't it's because i work with niche equipment that happens to support shorter spot breeding that's it basically for my sake but yeah. uh, i know of a very big installation of shorter spot breeding nodes that it contains thousands of switches uh, I was saying shortest path forwarding. I was thinking OSPF, well, but you're talking about shortest path bridge, SPB, yes. which is uh, the SPB. IEEE standard. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Okay. SPB is awesome because you're doing it in the Ethernet stack and underneath the SPB is the ISIS or a version of ISIS protocol to distribute mm -hmm. the state information between around the devices. So it's, it's basically the other tree of EVPN, which... Mm. The EVPN VXLAN trunk is very big and the shortest path breeding trunk is very, very tiny because it has so, such a small user footprint. But basically it's using, it's much of the same thing. You're using ISIS TLVs to propagate your information mm -hmm. and it's the data plane and it's also your, your control plane, which simplifies everything pretty much. This was a battle we had, I don't know, 10 years ago. When shortest the IEEE came out with shortest path bridging, which was going to be the overlay networking, but by the time they reached the market uh, with the SPB protocol, I can't remember the IEEE standard number for SPB, but we did like a whole bunch of shows, um, and there was a whole bunch of vendors that wanted to do SPB, but Cisco introduced uh, Virtual Connect. Was that the product? Um, uh, I guess the, the one that's closest to SBB is Trill, I guess. That's yeah, Trill. That's it. My good. So it's how quickly the information fades out of one's tiny little brain. Um, they introduced Trill, which was meant to be. So before, for people who are listening who don't know, um, there was a very popular thing in the data center about 10 years ago where before we were going to do software defined networking, the idea was that if you're going to have a control plane in the data center, then it should be done at layer two. And there was two standards, one from the ITF called Trill and one from the IEEE called Shortest Path Bridging. Let's not leave out our old friend Fabric Path, who has ruined <laughs> many a life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Fabric Path was a version of Trill, wasn't it? Uh, kind of, sort of. I mean, it was, a, it was proprietary to Cisco. Um, yeah. It, it looked a lot like Trill um, from a high level. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was Cisco didn't want to wait for the Trill standard to finalize, so they introduced Fabric Path. And then refused to make Fabric Path Trill until much later when the market said it has to be standards compliant. And they sort of grudgingly said, yeah, we'll support it, is how I recall it. And then SPB arrived. SPB was superior in almost every way, except it came from the IEEE and nobody knew who the IEEE was. And only a couple of companies popped up and supported. Cisco flatly refused, if I remember rightly. 
So do, do you find some... the do you find the interoperability of SPB to actually work? Because uh, I to me that's always like the theoretical reason that you would want to use something like uh, EVP and VXLAN. Now that's a theoretical interop. I mean, it might interop, but it really doesn't functionally. I think if you ask anybody who's actually tried to do it, they're gonna be like, "Oh yeah, it's been a bad time." But with SPB, how does that kind of work intervendor? It from what I haven't tested it myself, but since there it's only like three ven- vendors. And well, it's in the Linux kernel also. It's only supported by three big vendors, three not so big vendors. I think it's Extreme, Alcatel, Lucent Enterprise, and UOA who supports it today. So it's all and, theoretical. Then. And Extreme, <laughs> yeah, Extreme bought it from Avaya, got it in the Avaya mm. acquisition. Mm. So uh, the thing is, in this case, it's for me, it has been use what you have, and I happen to have this technique. But I know it's used just because it, it's not forwarding over IP. It's bridging over ISIS within the ISIS protocol using IP protocol 124, right? if I remember it correctly. So it's actually used in high security setups where you don't have any IPs at all in your transport network. None. There's quite a few metro networks using um, shortest path bridging instead of MPLS as well. So they can mm-hmm. do multi-tenant, they can do wide area over DWDM, and it scales way bigger than MPLS at far less overhead in the silicon as well, because it's all Ethernet. There's no need to do IP lookups or you know maintain a route table. It's all just Ethernet. It's all. Uh, and a lot of what I think you're talking about is you know I don't want to go and assign IPs to every link and burn through a whole you know RFC 1918 address block, but. That's what IPv6 link locals are for. Mm-hmm. And I think, and, uh, yeah. you know, there are some vendors that even make that easier where they'll just say like, peer over this interface, figure out the V6 link local stuff. Don't make IPs. Not everybody does. They should. But hmm. there are some solutions in the IP space as well. Well, I think the other reason, too, that it's kind of nice is just because, well, if you screw up your IP protocol, like across your infrastructure, like you don't actually break your Ethernet. So that kind of like helps with the crossing layer boundaries uh, whole issue. And that's always been one of the things I kind of like about running ISIS, like as a as an IGP. It's like, well, like if you break IP on the interfaces, it still works. Like if I break IPv6 on the interfaces, it still works. And I don't know, part of me also kind of likes keeping the multi uh, multi protocol routing a little bit alive yeah. still. Well, shortest it's... path bridging doesn't run ISIS. It runs an ISIS-like protocol, or it is an SPF protocol stack. It's based on ISIS because ISIS will let you propagate Ethernet MAC information into TLVs. I'm speaking from very old memory here. Um, the, the greatest thing about uh, shortest path bridging was that it did Ethernet and Ethernet encapsulation. And so once you encapsulated the Ethernet inside of an Ethernet then all of the upstream boxes only needed to know. So in the same way that when you VXLAN and you shove everything into a, into an IP tunnel, everything then just looks like it's one Ethernet MAC address. And so the internal forwarding tables didn't get bloated like MPLS does. And its ability to support multi-tenant at scale is phenomenally better than MPLS. But you had the limitations of QOS. So one of the failings of SPB was um, failings, shortcomings. It wasn't a failing. It was a shortcoming was that you couldn't quass it very well. Um, and carriers are absolutely bent out of shape around quass. The two things I miss in it, it's um, uh, the QS uh, possibilities and then hmm. also um, the possibility to do 
multi-homing actually to, to mm. host uh, you can do in eVPN. But I was just thinking, giving you a short rundown of, of how easy yeah. it is to set, set it up because it's very easy. And it's actually very close to what MPLS does in, a, in its basic form. You can do L2 VPNs, you can do L3 VPNs, and you can do pseudo wires. And that's pretty familiar, right? It sounds mm. just like MPLS, most mm -hmm. more or less. But it was in intended case, to replace MPLS, by the way, and to interoperate with it. So there was an attempt to map SPB overlays into MPLS. There was an edge uh, working group where SPB tenants were mapped into MPLS VPNs at some point, but yes, I don't think it went too far yet. I actually think that's an RFC that mm. exists, but I don't know anyone that, that supports it. Yeah. Uh, so in a space form, uh, the version of SPB that's used is called SPB-M, and that's for Mac in Mac encapsulation. There also was a version called SPB-V for VLANs, so VLAN in VLAN. So basically, SPB is provider backbone bridging, if you remember that old hog technique, and <laughs> Q and Q added do it. I think the interesting thing is to maybe talk about why it didn't take off. Why aren't we seeing it used everywhere? Did, did you have any thoughts about why people didn't use it? Uh, I think that I know that the big vendors were on it, but they didn't get any functional. Uh, it was the setups I have seen has been very, very buggy. If you're talking the mm. really big vendors. Yeah. So it didn't fly really. People got fed up with it. And then EVPN came along the corner and said, look here, I can solve this. I always thought that it, like people had decided that IP was the layer that mattered. And so the idea of doing Ethernet over Ethernet encapsulation rather than Ethernet over IP was just something that seemed more obvious to people. And so they didn't question it when people came along and said, here's VXLAN. What was the other one that uh, Nasira introduced? I can't remember anymore. Um, Neve. Yeah, they had they had their own version which could use TCP offload instead of UDP. Yeah, I think that was I think I think that was the Geneve and Cap. Yeah, of Geneve. Yeah. And, I, I bet um, there was a sorry, interrupt, Greg. I think there's probably another component which is if we're doing Mac and Mac, then we have to be L2 adjacent and be able to do those Mac lookups. If we're doing this Mac and IP, then it doesn't matter, right? We can be L3 adjacent and it'll work. We can be L2 adjacent and it'll work. You know, we become topology technology independent. Uh, agnostic on some level uh, between those two endpoints, as opposed mm. to needing a, you know, end-to-end -end system that supports the whole thing. Mm. Yep. What you actually need is you need some sort of link, and it needs to be also to be slightly Yambo. I used to call it slightly Yambo frames, since you need 1524 in order to host the Mac in Mac. Um, and but you can do it over least. E-links, for example, uh, mm -hmm. you can do it. You don't have to have, you can do it over a shared network that yep. demands a bit more configuration, but still it's, it's ISIS underneath. Mm. Uh, now, if I remember rightly, the whole of the Soccer Olympics uh, in 2014, in 2000 that was, was all done on SPB. Yes. That there, was, was, um, there was not a single IP router in the place except to escape from off the network. The, the most common deployment is is a layer two deployment where you, mm. since you can use all your links. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have any problems with loops or anything like that. So anybody who's listening thinking, oh, what about 
you know, Ethernet loops. They just don't happen because the the ISIS uh, controls the path so that loops can't form. Unlike you in a in a in a spanning tree in land. There are some some caveats because if you have if you have links with different link speeds, you need to set the the distance on them properly because mathematically, if you have ten gig or 100 gig, 400 gigs, they need to be pro- proportional to each other because then you'll actually get a weighted ECMP over the backbone. And that's very important because if you have different links, it's so you weird to me to that here we had this protocol that could do weighted ECMP. And today, AI, what's the big deal about AI networking is weighted ECMP, but they're going to do it in external software. Yeah, but the, they're actually going to do flat, they're going to use <clears> telemetry <throat> to monitor the elephant flows to do weighted ECMP. But the the interoperability is of of course better if you have if you have an IP based protocol. I totally get that. This is for link link your own links, so to say. It's funny that you know the protocols that we invented back then that could have solved all this problem and made it, but now we have to reinvent something. Now there's a few things here. If you want to understand more about SPB, do some searching on the internet. It's a really interesting protocol. If you're one of these people who wants to really understand how networking protocols work and not just learn BGP, IP, and OSPF, and consider you're done. Um, do some reading on Shortest Path Bridging. It was a really interesting way of uh, stretching your mind as to thinking about how protocols work. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. Now, the thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches and you shouldn't need to think about it. It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG hosted monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pessler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com, that's PRTG.com, and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. So let's move on to topic two. This is actually a follow-up. So at Packet Pushes, we have follow-up where people can come in and send their FU to us and tell us what they're thinking, tell us uh, feedback. If we say something on a show and it's wrong, and if you go to packetpushes.net slash FU, there's a form there. We don't collect any data about you. Uh, and somebody, an anonymous person wrote in, he said, I've been listening to you for the last seven years and I appreciate the, the quality of the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I have a bit of a personal question. What would you advise to folks affected by recent layoffs fed up and looking to start their own thing. Um, It feels that networking is becoming a commodity and I'm getting a bit frustrated. I am going to throw this one over to you, Marvin. Let's start with you. Do you think uh, networking is becoming a bit of a commodity and getting boring? Interesting question. Yeah, to some degree, I would say, uh, yes, that it's become, you know, hey, on other times in this podcast, I think someone's referenced, you know, networking people are basically, you know, plumbers now. We just hook stuff up and configure a few things and it's all supposed to work. The part of this follow-up I'd like to tap into a little bit is if 
if someone's feeling entrepreneurial here and they can identify some niche that needs attention, that's, that's where you could, um, you know, specialize. It seems like there's, there's never a shortage of specialists for some, you know, esoteric protocol that needs attention in some environment. Of course, it's going to be its own set of boring, but it'll be a different boring probably than just being your yet another network administrator. Are we still talking about choice path bridging? No. (laughs) (laughs) Of course we are. (laughs) Great, 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 great response. Great response. No, Marvin, um, I think you I think you make a really good point. I think um, you know, most of it's marketing, but I think there's a lot of this AI, AI networking. What does it mean? Do you understand Rocky and all these things? And I think it's like every other networking, uh, every other networking job requirement are nice to have. You're like, did you spend three hours reading about this thing before the interview? Like it turns out most of the people who are like either there aren't experts or their definition of expert is uh, way lower than they think it is. Um, but I agree with you, you know, there's, there's space out there for people to take in those, those more niche roles. I think the challenge is like any other specialization is that, you know, you go wide or you go deep. And if you go deep, there's probably more money in it. You're going to be an expert, whatever, but you also can then only, you limit the number of opportunities you're going to find unless you can figure out ways to apply that skill set in some other avenue. Yeah, I think for me, this is why it always comes back to that whole like T-shaped skills concept, because I think with networking, I do agree that it has actually gotten quite pretty boring. I don't think that there's a ton of innovation in networking itself, but I think that you're you if you want to be in the networking industry in some way, you obviously need a strong base in the networking fundamentals. And knowing that is something you can't really get out of. So I think that forming that wide base in the networking fundamentals, as well as just understanding how it interacts with the other layers of, you know, the whole IT department stack, I guess, uh, is pretty valuable. And then choosing a specialization on top of that and being willing to, I think, discard that specialization over time as it changes and move from niche to niche. Um, Because, yeah, I don't think that when you deeply specialize in something that that's a forever thing. I think that that changes a lot still. But I think that having that really strong base is not going away. But I think Mm. that that's kind of like table stakes at this point of being in the networking field is like you have to really know how it works but that's not going to get you by like it used to be like if you just knew how to configure network devices like you were guaranteed work like like you could just always find a job like router jockeying and i just think that's kind of like it is still exists and it always will exist but it's, it's not as interesting for sure for me at least and so i think that being able to find some way to make yourself stand out just a little bit um specialize in something for me i i like the software side but you know i think there's tons of different paths to go down uh, to specialize in is pretty valuable. And I think there's also just a, the world is different for us as network engineers than it was say 10 years ago where there, you know, there are some people who might be on this call who I won't name who have worked on protocols that have not seen an implementation in 15, 20 years, right? You have people who've used uh, IPX or was it Banyan Vines or, you know, Novell. Back in the days when men were men and sheep were nervous. Yeah. And, you know, they had not yet invented the one. You're only working with the zero. But like for me, I've, I've only lived in an Ethernet IP world. You know, Frame Relay was a theoretical thing that was still on my Cisco exams. But all we had is IP and Ethernet. And I think what has happened is this kind of comes back to what Chris has mentioned. Like, you know, we, we've kind of kind of solved it, right? And they're like, all right, we've, we solved all the networking problems. Everybody go home. 
And so instead of learning six protocols, we now have to kind of learn, you know, the next neighborhood over. And I think there we say like, well, what, what got you into networking in the first place? What was interesting about it? Does that mean you should look at systems? Is it like big complicated orchestration stuff? So maybe we should look at like cloud or Terraform or Crossplane or Pulumi for orchestrating those resources. Is it security? Um, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of space to find what's that next thing over and anybody who can talk to two skills is going to be more valuable than somebody that can only talk to one. I mean, in my career, I did very little pure networking. I spent most of my time working on load balancers, proxies, firewalls, application inspection engines, traffic shapers. That's all networking. So if you're, you know, spending your life configuring EVPNs or SD-WANs, um, then maybe start looking into adjacent technology stacks where understanding the HTTP protocol and what are the command verbs that go on inside of that or get into uh, automation, writing code. We're going to talk about automation in our next topic, but, you know, start writing your own code in your spare time. I do think one of the things that I've noticed is um, a lot of networking teams are firefighters or used to be firefighters where you'd be sitting there, you might be doing some project work, but most of the time your goal was to be around and be ready. So if something went wrong, you know, the the alarm would go off and the wee wah wee wah and the fire engine would pull out and you'd be off recovering the failed link or fixing the spanning tree loop in the data center or whatever it was. But these days that's less common in my from what I can see. Is that correct? Are you guys seeing that in the field? I think it still exists a lot, but um yeah, I, I don't I don't think that's like the place where you can go to have a long term career is how I would say. It. Like I think there's still like a lot of organizations where you need firefighters, but I, I just don't see that as a, a career that has a ton of progression because a lot of that's getting taken over by, you know, just easier to use interfaces for things. Mm-hmm. So Firefighting is now easier and doesn't require as like deep knowledge, uh, maybe in troubleshooting the, the the network as it did before. You have like way more observability tools and things like that. So I definitely still see it. Like, I mean, we have people in our organization that are dedicated to that and they're very important. But, you know, it's it's not necessarily like you know, I'm going to make my career that like, it's usually a stop along the way or, yeah. you know, kind of an ends to a means or means to an end or whatever. I think. So something on this specialization thing, I think there's a pretty big wide open opportunity for a specialist that can sort of provide an end to end solution, if you will. So there's, you know, hundreds of cases where there's, you know, some business or something or even some whole uh, vertical, uh, market vertical that is still today using legacy equipment, you know, it's stitched together. There's no shortage of of heritage systems, if you will, that Mm. still could use an upgrade. And so if you wanted to pursue a specialized knowledge in a certain area as part of providing some type of complete solution to a customer, I think there'd be a pretty wide field of opportunity there. And if it's the type of thing, you know, hey, you're looking to start a one man show or something. Um, the book, the personal MBA is a fantastic resource for anyone who's looking to look at the business side of things and see how they can research a market and develop that market on any on any size of business or consultants. Yeah, learning business isn't particularly hard for a technologist. You just go and sit around some business people and you'll go like, is that it? Hmm. I never struggled with it. And most technologists I know, the stuff that we do day to day is super hard, like hard knowledge. And what business people do all day is mostly sit around and chat to each other and then eventually agree 
on the obvious choice that they're going to make in if they hadn't even bothered to waste the time on it. So there's that. I think also one of the things we're seeing in networking is once upon a time, people were data center networkers or campus networkers or wireless networkers or WAN or telco. And I think there's much more of a convergence where all of that is becoming one. So if you're still just working in one area of networking, say in the campus, you're starting to say, well, wired and wireless are now one thing. And I think increasingly wired, wireless and WAN are all going to be one thing. And there's only going to be two types of network, one that's in the data center uh, or two types of infrastructure, one that's in the data center and one that's not. And all of the networking will become zero trust. So the campus wired, the campus wireless, the WAN, the branch, remote access will all just become this incoherent blob of same technology. The only thing that's different is a physical layer, whether it's a broadband or a 4G, 5G, or a, you know, a switch in your head office that's connected hardwired in because it's just cheaper than sending, you know, that sort of thing. The other thing I would suggest is uh, quit. It's my general recommendation that you should change jobs regularly. There's not actually, it's not like every year, it's not like every two years, but you need to change jobs regularly to go and work on new stuff. And the mistake that a lot of people make, I think, is to think, well, I'm here. Why aren't they giving me more interesting work to do? That's the wrong answer. You've learned everything that that company is going to, all the opportunities that they have for you, you've learned what they're going to, you're going to learn from them. So by, you know, jumping jobs and going somewhere else, hopefully you're in a town or a city where you can do that or a situation where you can start casting around and then go and work in a different environment and learn it. Like one of the successes perhaps that I, if I'd like to think it has been a success is I've worked for something in the order of a hundred companies in my career as, as a network engineer, as a, as a grunt, as a intern, as a senior engineer, as a consultant, all that stuff. And each one of those was a learning experience that kept me interested and excited about what was happening in technology. So the challenge with career advice is that if you're in a situation, your situation is very unique. If you're in the same job for five years, um, I remember once I interviewed a CCIE uh, person who checked out, had all the details, but he'd spent seven years working on a VPN network with five PIX firewalls in it. And that was all he knew after seven years. And he was bored. And I thought, well, yeah, all you know is IPsec VPNs on one hardware platform. And that was it. So uh, if you want to change around, that's the advice. I generally don't like talking about career advice. So hopefully that's the last time people ask. I don't, uh, uh, I find talking about career advice is something that's best done one-on-one, not in a podcast format because it's also contextual. And I'll yeah, always I'll, give you the same advice. Just change jobs. I'll, I'll pile on and say, I think that's great advice. I think um, there's a lot of research that we don't quit things enough, right? Mm. Whether it's jobs or bad hobbies or whatever. Mm. Um, the one exception is if you're learning and growing. Um you know, I, I found myself at a job not too long ago where uh, I stayed for, you know, over seven years. But through that time, I did some sales engineering. I did some technical marketing. I did some management. I found myself working with our marketing team, our engineering team, like kind of all aspects of the business where I was always a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, and then a little bit later, I found myself with a group of not great to work with folks. And, you know, it wasn't a good environment. And so I left in pretty but short it's a order. learning experience, like working with the wrong people or the wrong job or the wrong company teaches you what the wrong company looks like. So next time you're in a good company, you don't, you know, it's that joke about the bird who refused to fly north for the, north for the summer. And as he flies over, he sees a farm and he falls down in exhaustion into a big pile of manure and he's warm and he's happy. And so he sings and a cat comes along and eats him and the moral of the story is if you're happy 
and warm and comfortable in a big pile of poo, don't sing about it because maybe that's the best place to be. That's pretty good. <laughs> the problem is knowing when you're sitting in a pile of manure is the right situation to be in and you've just got to accept it. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Palo Alto Networks. 2023 is a year when companies are going to need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has a new virtual event on its Prisma Sassy, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. You can watch this event on demand and see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma SASE. Watch this event on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sassy dash signature dash moment. And now back to the podcast. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Chris, this is your fault. Automation is hard, but it ain't easy either. Why don't you explain, put it out there. Tell me what you're talking about. Yeah, so this kind of came uh, to mind from talking to a student assistant I have. Uh, we were talking about uh, this this project we're working on, which involves like FPGAs and, and DPTK and all that stuff, which sounds really hard, but it's but uh, one of the things he kind of brought up to me is like, I, I feel like I'm not really writing software. I feel like I'm just like, you know, trying to figure out how this stuff works together and like how, and this is a CS student, right? And like how, how, like, what what things we need to change and reading more about ICMP and, and 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 IPv6 and IPv4 and all of these things instead of actually writing code and like you know is somebody who's come from and is finishing up his you know CS undergrad where a lot of the stuff they teach you in in like a CS program a traditional CS program is a lot of like you know algorithmic uh, things that you're trying to solve right really complicated like you know how to do the most efficient searching pattern or you know, kind of like the leak code uh, stuff that a lot of really nerdy programmers love to get into. And, you know, one of the things he brought up, he's like, I didn't realize how working on like a real project would be so little development. <laughs> and so that kind of spun off into this, you know, in, in the network orchestration and automation world, like, which is the, which is a role that I'm in. Like, I don't think that any of the software I write is, is hard at all, hmm. but it's not easy to do. And so like really the, like half the time the the code I write will be one or two lines. It just adds two numbers together, but I'll spend a week talking about how do we get those numbers? Where do we pull them from? Like what, what, what do they mean? Yeah, exactly. Like what, 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 if I read this variable from this API, is that in bits per second, bytes per second, megabytes, gigabytes, you know, um, is it binary formatted? Is it decimal formatted? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, and, and also just like understanding the the business process around what you're trying to do. Right. So like I get another example just off the top of my mind is like, I, I got a request recently to work on adding some uh, seamless BFD config to our routers. And so I get a, f- a few lines of config uh, from a network engineer and I start looking at it and, you know, my background is in network engineering. So I'm trying to understand how this works from a network standpoint. And so I have to start asking all these questions around like, well, I look at the configs on the routers and I see a policy that does 99% of the same thing. Is this dependent on that? Because if it is dependent on that, we need to make sure that, you know, that dependency is linked so that when we go to deploy something that relies on SBFD, you know, that all the actual bits are there and we're not, it just doesn't happen to be there. Right. And all of the actual dependencies are chained appropriately. And I, 
I, I spent like 30 minutes writing actual code for it. And again, half of it came down to like adding a couple variables together and that's it. Like in modifying yeah. a little bit XML, like copy and pasting XML and changing it to a variable name. Like that's been the hardest like development I have to do. So I think the challenge here is what you're saying is once you know what you're doing in automation, so once you've climbed that hill, it's a plateau at the top. It's not that hard to actually execute the work. So I think when I talk to people about automation, like if you're still handcrafting automation, you can go out and get a whole bunch of libraries from lots of different people. Like, you know, look at how many people are building automations on the top of NetBox, for example. Mm -hmm. And you go out and you grab some code and then you just basically all you do is reading the bits from NetBox that you care about and boom, you're in business sort of thing. But climbing that first plateau to understand automation as a topic and what does business want? What do these variables do? What are the things that I need to know? I, I put it to you that that is incredibly difficult to do. Yeah. And, and, and like, really, really, it's understanding the business needs specifically and like how to de design your services appropriately. And like, I can't explain, I can't even begin to express how many times I've, I've gotten a request to build something. I go, well, what are we actually trying to offer here? Like, what are we trying to do with this? Cause somebody will be like, I need a way to automatically build LSPs. I'm like, okay. Like just cause you like LSPs or because you actually want to deliver something. Well, you know, we're doing a cloud connect thing and we need to be able to ensure QoS and bandwidth. And so then it becomes this like way bigger picture of understanding what we're trying to accomplish because there's kind of the two camps of there's orchestration, which is like actually defining your services and then making them. So, which is like the classic intent based networking buzzword. And then there's actually like automation, which is just like, well, I just need to do this config stuff. And it's very like router config oriented. And so like, yeah, but in either one of them, I still contend that, yeah, the, the actual development's not that hard. And I would offer it as maybe an encouragement to people who get really scared by um, automation orchestration is like the, the development problems aren't that tough. You don't need to be a leak code programmer. You just have to be able to understand the problems you're trying to solve. And if you can communicate that, there's an army of developers that can solve leak code problems that can actually go out and do that stuff. And you don't have to actually worry mm. about it. Yeah, I remember we did a show years ago with somebody who was a, and he was a senior network engineer and his job as a network engineer was really writing the specifications for the programmers. So he had a, a room of 10 or 20 programmers writing the code and he had two, himself and two other engineers specking out what needed to be written and why. And he didn't write the code, but he wrote the code. Like the, the whole app was what he designed it and intended it to be. And he had to read code, but the programmers wrote it. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, Chris, over Tom, as you tackle all these different projects, have you developed sort of a standardized checklist that, hey, you got a new project, I need to hit these items. Any any words on that? Yeah, that, ooh, that's a good one. I think that's at least at the organization I'm at currently is something we're like constantly kind of working on. So we definitely have templates of asks. Uh, so like when when we ask somebody for or when somebody wants something from us, we will always always default to like, okay, well, what are you actually trying to do? And like, what's the customer need? I think it's probably the big driver. And sometimes that's an internal customer. Like maybe it's just, I need, cause like when you think of like, okay, seamless BFD, for example, like that's not something customer facing, right? Like the, we BFD is customer facing, but not like seamless BFD is like something on our backbone that's used, you know, specifically for backbone traffic and customer traffic obviously is going over it, but it's not, you can't point to a customer that needs an SBFD service. And so like, yeah, I think that's probably the number one thing on our checklist is like trying to figure out how it impacts the overall like widget that you're trying to make in your networking organization. I have a lot of ragey feelings in this space, so I will try <laughs> to keep them a little bit in check. But I think the problem is we just have awful, awful tools still. We've been talking about having awful tools for over a decade. But like your BFD thing, 
let's take it another step further. I'm a service provider and I give you an L2 connection, right? That's pretty, that's conceptually easy. What do you do when I pass you a CDP packet or an LACP packet or a multicast frame? What happens? I don't know. I don't know. Well, (laughs) why can't I just test it? Oh, because I have to have half a million dollars of the lab equipment to just see if the light turns green. That's insane. That's insane. Like the reason why it feels hard is because I can't test it on my laptop. I can't spin up two VMs or like a mini little AWS instance or whatever and just poke it and fail a bunch of times very, very quickly. I have to fail in a maintenance window. And that is is really expensive failure. And it makes me so, so angry. I, I cannot like agree with you enough because yeah, that, that that's, and that's been like probably one of the biggest things I've like pushed really hard in, in my current role is being the guy who like, is like, we need better test environments. And I definitely have like pushed that to the point where everybody hates hearing it. Cause I'm like, well, how are we doing this in the test environment? And I will say that like container lab is one of those tools by Roman that is like close, but it's like something we should have had forever ago. And it's not everything, right? Like it, it's very, it's very narrowly and tightly scoped. Yeah, I mean, yeah, being able to actually test stuff. I mean, there's been so many companies that have come and try to do it. Like Batfish is another good example of one that's like kind of interesting. Um, but I it's still can't point come. to a single thing that like can actually just tell me what happens when I do this change. I mean, it's there's come from the vendors, though. That's the problem. Everybody's trying to create this like high fidelity impersonation on top. Yes. You're like, talk to me. I swear. You know, I'm an actual Cisco device. I'm not three VMs in a trench coat, uh, <laughs> right? Like, but three containers, in a coat. three containers in a trench coat. Yeah, well, three containers running VMs, running VMs, which is that's right. Yeah, that's Every one. vendor should be providing virtual machines and/or containers. Those should be representing their exact software with their same interfaces and their same APIs. And look, there's going to be some level where the ASIC does a thing, and who knows? And like. If it's Taco Tuesday on a leap year, it's not going to encapsulate properly. Sure. I get it. Mm-hmm. Guess what? Sometimes you compile a C program and the x86 CPU doesn't do what you want either. But those are pretty rare and you're going to get so much more done, but mm-hmm. nobody in vendor space cares. Uh, yeah, there I've... are some vendors. No, there are. Um, so some of the newer vendors, if you look at uh, Nokia's SR Linux, which they've talked about a lot, uh, some of the white box people who just make operating systems for white box this is one of the big things for them is you can just spin up a copy of their os and it will absolutely work the way it's it will work in the field barring interactions with the broadcom asic or you know uh, the fp5 or fp6 or whatever right and that is happening but most people aren't in that world they're not willing to throw out their favorite brand of you know product and go with something modern they're happy to stick with the old stuff yeah, and surprisingly, even some old vendors do it. Like it, mm-hmm. now, it's still Nokia, but like the Nokia, even their classic IP routing platform has mm-hmm. it's it's amazing. They they have what they call their uh, vSIM, and mm-hmm. it actually has virtual power supplies. That if you don't configure them, the VM will not boot up the line card. It'll give you an error. It'll say, "Sorry, you don't have enough power in this chassis to boot up the line card." The first time I ran into that, I I was just like, "What the heck?" And then I was like, "Oh my god, this is awesome!" I would never and be it, so happy to be so mad at something. I mean, I like, so that's awesome. It is so terrible and so great. But yeah, I totally agree. Like, yeah, the vendors have to step up and Juniper, I will call you out on this. You are the worst. You are the worst. I have wasted so many hours 
hours, weeks of my life on VQFX, just trying to have something that somewhat takes the shape of a Juniper switch that I can spin up and test against and then throw away. And now you're coming out with some new stuff that I'm going to try. So, okay, don't like light me up. But mm. I like it is so sad that I can't for every piece of hardware in my network, just have something that just responds the same way, like that has the same general form of an api and in i before, can just point and before we monkey paw this and we get what we wanted and it just takes 16 <laughs> cpu cores and 128 <laughs> gigs of ram yeah. and i want to run it all on a raspberry pi on my yeah. desk yeah, yeah so, that's right so chris it's coming it's coming you're just gonna have to buy one of those like nvidia yeah. supercomputers to run <laughs> one node <laughs> oh, sign me up. It would be worth it, honestly, because I've actually been involved in a in a project uh, at one point where we have spent is I won't talk specifics, but we've, we've actually spent millions of dollars just buying hardware that we can test against. And I have to wonder at some point if yeah. the vendors aren't intentionally making this bad because they know that the people who care about it, which are the ones that are going to pay for it, it's also really hard to monetize. But like because the ones who care about it are just going to buy the hardware because they need it. And I have to wonder if they're just going to do it anyway. No, like just, I don't, I don't think that. Do I don't think there's anything malicious here. I think it's just vendors are saying, "Why would I write a new operating system just to be able to solve that problem? I'd much rather sell the existing operating system that I've been making for twenty years, and I'll glom some extra container support into it and call it modern and fresh or whatever." Um, and I, I think that you know, at some point, they will realize that the heritage operating system models that the, the NOS that they've got gets to a point of maximum craftiness. And and they just have to wipe the slate clean and start again. But they're gonna not. It's like, look at electric cars. Electric cars are obviously so much better than petrol engine cars, right? And yet, we're still not free of petrol engine cars. But at some point, there's a breaking point, and we're getting closer and closer to it. I'm feeling All so the- baited. I'm feeling so baited right now. Like <laughs> only there was some sort of computer software that talked to the hardware. And ran yeah. on, I don't know, millions of things and VMs and servers. Yeah. Like we'd probably give a cute little mascot, like a little, a little penguin or something. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> that sound real. like maybe. Yeah. yeah, maybe. That doesn't sound real. I don't think that exists. Uh, go back. Let's move go on back. to our fourth and final topic, Marvin. This is yours. You wanted to talk about self-hosting. Lay it out for us. Yeah, sure thing. So the company I work for places a really high value on data sovereignty. So we self-host nearly all of our resources from ERP to the services we provide our customers. And, you know, we recommend our customers and partners to self-host their own things as well. And in this audience, you know, a lot of you probably have, or at least dream of having your own servers in the basement for whatever. But outside of like the techie world, when you go to the general population, it seems like there's a lot of resistance in doing so. Well, first of all, I guess you would say there's probably a lot of just, uh, unfamiliarity with the idea to start with. But then for the people that do know it can be done, say, for example, hosting their own next cloud or whatever for file sharing, you know, it doesn't seem like that seems to be a real, you know, popular thing that everyone's lining up to do. And mm. I'd be curious to hear what people's thoughts are on what those barriers are to the common Joe or Jane spinning up his own system or even small businesses. I guess there's NAS players in the space, but just in general, I'm I'm just curious what people's thoughts are on what like root causes are that self-hosting isn't more of a thing. Cloud's the fashion. You've got to have cloud. It's got to be off-prem. It's got to be branded cloud. It's like cloud is a, so hot right now. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, it's got to be, but it can't just be any cloud. It's got to be from the AW. It's got to be have the AWS logo on it or the Azure, you know, whatever. 
Everybody's well, it's not fashion- from the AWS region of cloud. It's just sparkling computers. Exactly. Someone else's computer. Yeah. Well, I just think it's funny you brought this up because I literally just got back from picking up my my mail today, which has this. You can't see this on an audio format, but it's a it's one of the last nucks now that Intel's not selling them. So I, for from a home perspective, I do self-host some things, but the interesting reason as to why why I have a NUC now or two NUCs is because I'm tired of it. And I'm tired of having loud servers yelling and screaming in my basement. And I'm actually downsizing significantly what I do, even as a techie who this should be attractive to. I'm tired of it. And I think it has a few things like it has to do with a few things. A, like I'm getting older and I'm just tired of messing with stuff. And I don't want to mess with stuff like I, I want to go outside. I want to run. I want to like not play with computers like I want to be done at the end of the day and just close my computer and walk away. And I mm-hmm. do that. And so I don't want to maintain like my uh my own cloud not necessarily the software owned cloud but like my own cloud uh mm-hmm. at home because it's a lot of work and um i i, w- I have other things i want to do um i'm actually not that good at it like i'm a bad sysadmin like i'm a network engineer so i don't want to like do all these sysadmin tasks because i'm not good at it i i like it from the learning standpoint but i do really think that as as soon as it comes to having to maintain this and it has to be available and especially if you have other people in your life, like there's SLAs involved. And I already get yelled at enough about SLAs <laughs> yeah, but I think, in the I think Marvin's point is not only at home, but also for companies. So many companies are just taking their data center and saying, well, you know, we'll just put it in the cloud. I think a lot of the same reasons apply. Like you don't want to have to deal with like running servers. You don't want to have to pay really like, you know, grumpy system administrators to maintain things anymore because yeah. you, you you hired the bastard operator from hell and like, <laughs> you know, he's he's throwing the PFY yeah. into. I don't into think there's like too many iPad. of those around anymore. What I do think is, um, is that cloud has this perception that things will automatically be solved. And what you're starting to see is the anti, the blowback to that, where people are saying, you know, once I moved into the cloud, I just realized how expensive it was for someone else to do this for me. People are talking like 300% more expensive than including headcount and power and all the things. People keep saying, oh, it's so much cheaper and all that. It's not. It's it's once you take into account, you know, the cloud is giving it to somebody else like on a public cloud. Now, there are some values in the public cloud where they have access to services or they offer you services like, you know, infinitely, an infinite amount of storage space. I would put it to you that if you feel that having an infinite amount of storage space is a business need, you have a uh, internal discipline problem in the first place. You could, you know, you, you could buy it for a third of the price. But if you don't care about price, and one of the things you'll hear me say in the show, is enterprise IT doesn't care about price. If they cared about price, they wouldn't be in a public cloud in the first place. So, are you seeing companies do this on, like as Marvin said, on premises, hosting their own servers, continuing to run them? I guess the other question is, can we build a private cloud on prem? Can you actually build a version of the public cloud? on-prem where you could click a button and a system deploys and storage and compute and networking and IPs and applica- it's all deployed in the same way as what you do. It'll be your self-host. They'll gladly take your money and ship you a rack of their own stuff. But I think, you know, the data sovereignty, like what's the business reason for picking one or the other? And I think that's where, especially as network engineers, we lose sight sometimes. We're like, well, it's so much easier. It's reliable. It's faster, whatever. Um, but I think we'll, on the data sovereignty thing, like that's a huge business decision, right? That's a huge driver, right? JP Morgan is considered to have one of the largest server counts in the world. Like not quite Facebook size, but like the tier below. Uh, and that's because, you know, they are the bank as they like to call themselves. 
capital T, capital B. The flip mm. side though, is if you look at AWS or any of the clouds, if you're a developer, it's all there. Hey, I wanna do like, I just wanna test some AI thing. All my data sitting here in this S3 bucket, I click a button and I get their little AI library thing. I click another button, I get a Kubernetes service. I didn't I have to go a- to somebody and beg for a PO to buy an AI thing and then wait for like a vendor this, yeah. to spend six weeks for a vendor to send somebody out on site to talk to me about or AI. Even- and six weeks for a like, pre-sale cycle, and then six weeks for a purchase order, and then six weeks for fulfillment, and then six weeks to get it up to an operational state. Yeah. I mean, that's a hard reality, but like, let's even make it simpler than that. We work in the infrastructure, IT, whatever team. You need a virtual machine from the server team to test something. How long does that take in your organization? I remember that was like polling teeth. They're like, well, what, what's the business reason? What's the justification? How many cores? How, how much... If you will never touch this VM again after you give us what you, after you tell us what you want, you're like, no, I need more flexibility in this. I need to be able to nuke it from orbit, start over because I'm probably going to break it. And that, that is what cloud gives you. And so I think it's, um, self-hosting, I think is super important and popular. Like it, you know, the cloud has a large, uh, marketing platform. Yeah. If you don't know what, so I've always boiled that down to, if you don't know what you're doing or where you're going, then being off-prem makes sense because you've got all the possibilities are there. And you're going to waste an awful lot of cash tracing down rat holes until you find out what it is you want to do. But another way to do it would be to be disciplined and smart and to know what you're doing and and to actually only spend money on the things that you need. Yeah. And I think it's like any other um, resource that's key to any other organization. So for example, your city is going to have a bunch of trucks that they hired some uh, mechanics that work for the city and repair those yeah. trucks. Your small, you know, delivery shop, where you know, uh, might have only two or three of those trucks to do deliveries. You probably don't hire your own mechanics. Mm-hmm. And so again, it's like, what? How often is this a problem? How important is it to us? What are the other kind of mitigating circumstances? For sure. And what I've always thought it kind of comes back to with like public cloud is like it allows you to focus on things you're better at versus the things you're not like great at. Um, because you know if. It, like you mentioned, having your own mechanics on staff like that, like if that's not a core competency of your business, like a lot of business professionals will tell you outsource that. And like, yeah, I, I, I still think that's valuable. I, as far as like self-hosting things in your company, mm-hmm. like I, I'm, I generally go like, don't do it unless you really have a good reason to do it at this point, which is kind of the opposite of what I would have said like 10 years ago, I guess. Yeah. I think we're seeing, we'll see how it plays out. I think we're now on the cusp of people are starting to realize what value off-prem brings, and also to start to respect the value of being on-prem. But I also would draw out that SaaS is also taking away a lot of stuff. So if you're going for, say, HPE Aruba Central or Palo Alto's Prisma to do your security scanning and content scanning, or if you're looking at Fortinet to do your wireless management, you know those things really, uh, as managed services, work much better than the days when we used to do them on-prem. And I used to be up until three in the morning just doing a dumb upgrade of a server that would run a radius server or something like that. So I think it's I think there's a balance here that we're we're starting to see putting out. Unfortunately, we are running out of time for today. I want to thank so much to uh, Pete Lumbus and Marvin Martin, Fran, Rickard Anderson, and Chris Cummings for coming on today's show. Uh, guys, why don't we start with you, Pete? Where can people find you on the internet? You know, I'm still sitting around while Twitter burns at Pete CCDE, and 
I don't know what else is out there now. It's feeling, it <laughs> feels sad for the community. If Twitter goes down, that's it. I'm done with social media. So I'm with you, right? Yeah. Um, because I'm not going to Facebook threads, Metabook, whatever it is. Uh, yeah. So, all right. I follow you and I see you on there on the wine. Uh, Chris, what about you? Uh, I am also watching the dumpster fire that is Twitter slowly burn and smolder around me at Cranky Netman, but I am on the Fediverse where I boot. And uh, I am at Cranky Netman at uh, dial.modem.show. Uh, I'm on modem.show. I got a blog slash 64.tech. And I think that's it. All right. And Rickard, where can people find you? I'm on LinkedIn and I blog occasionally on networkundertaker.com. And Marvin, where can people find you on the internet? Yep, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, check the show notes for the link there for that. And I'm not really active there. I lurk around on LinkedIn a bit. though, And uh, that's pretty much it for my social media. Fantastic. Now, all those links will be in the show notes. So if you want to check them out and to follow those people in the real world, you can do that. Um, I'd love to hear what you thought about today's format. Should we keep doing this? Uh, revisit the old days again? Uh, get the roundtable going on a more regular basis? We'll probably do it maybe monthly if your feedback is solid. Thanks very much for joining us on this roundtable today. There's a whole bunch of fine free technical podcasts across the Packet Pushes Network, Heavy Wireless, Heavy Strategy. Uh, we've got Day to Cloud. We've got the Full Stack Journey. There's so many more podcasts, not just Heavy Networking. If any of those take your fancy, go and have a listen to those. Follow us on Twitter. Any feedback you want to give us, don't hesitate to go to packetpushes.net slash FU. Tell us what you really think. If you love the format, hated the format, let us know both because then that'll help us decide whether we continue it. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.